You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Well, um, I'm delighted to be speaking to you today, Nicole. Uh, I read your book, um, and it was... I don't give this one up easily. I thought it was fantastic. You know, books, of course, are, are, are across the whole spectrum. And some of them are someone just trying to leverage an affiliation with not too much going on behind it. But you have reported the hell out of this topic. Oh, my and gosh. You're... Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> and, you. And you write with, with verve and, and flair. So I, I just enjoyed it from start to finish. But... I wondered if you could just tell our readers a little bit more about it. Um, what's what's uh, your book all about? So you know, I cover cybersecurity at the New York Times. And seven years ago, uh, the Times got access to a trove of the Snowden documents on behalf of The Guardian. And I was pulled into that project. And it was it was interesting because they had a lot of specifications around how we were able to access those documents and a lot of constrictions on what we were able to do with them and what we would report from them. And I was pulled in and assigned a story on how far has the NSA come in cracking digital encryption. And so I spent about three months just going through these documents, which if you've seen some of them, you know, they don't have a whole lot of context to them. They were a lot of PowerPoint slides and internal wiki documents at the NSA and the GCHQ. And I ended up doing a story which laid out all the ways that the GCHQ and NSA claimed to have cracked encryption. But what really stood out to me was all the ways that they were able to work around it by essentially hacking into all the various platforms that we rely on for communication and things like Windows, Microsoft Windows, that makes its way into critical infrastructure. You know, we use Windows to 
read the speed at which rotors are spinning at nuclear plants. We use windows to access the controls at an oil rig hundreds of miles offshore. So what struck me in seeing all of these access points that the NSA had was, how did they get into these systems? And one thing that had always interested me on my beat was these murmurs of a market specifically for governments where governments would pay hackers for holes to get into these systems. And those holes are called zero days. And I wanted to know how many of these backdoors that the NSA has came from this market. How are they procuring them? How do they decide which holes to patch and which to use for spying? Um, how, you know, who are they paying? Are these foreign hackers? Are these American hackers? And also there just seemed to be this almost moral hazard to this practice because we're all using the same technology that they were poking holes in and using for, for stealth and for espionage. So how do they decide, okay, we're going to let this hole in Microsoft Windows ride so we can spy on Iran or potentially access Iran's uh, rotors that's been their nuclear centrifuges, which is what they did in a, in a major attack was use those holes to uh, basically dismantle some of those centrifuges. So when do they use those holes for those kind of programs and operations? And when do they say, you know what, this technology is used in hospitals, it's used in railways, it's used by our economy, and we really need to see to it that this gets patched. And so that commenced this journey I've been on for the last seven years to really get to the bottom of those programs and the market in particular, and try to understand who came up with this idea to do this. What are sort of the levers that help make these decisions? And also has have these programs and this market spread abroad and, and how could they potentially come back to bite us? So that was the impetus for the book. And I tried to tell this story starting with me working in the Snowden documents and then going on this journey in a really character-driven way to meet the people who played such an integral role in these programs and in the market. There's a good bit at the beginning of the book where you're talking about working with a grumpy Scotsman from The Guardian. <laughs> yes, and I have to say, I loved The Guardian. I love Ewan and James Ball. Uh, who we worked with, and we were actually shoved into a closet together. And, and this was sort of funny and probably useful to your listeners. But when The Guardian came to us with the Snowden documents, one of the rules they had was don't bring any new devices into the room. And that part I understood because of what I'd been covering for the last few years. But the funny thing, which I did not know at the time, was they they mandated that we work in a room that didn't have windows because as they put it, someone could shoot a laser at the window and listen to everything we were saying. So this presented its own challenge at the New York Times because if you've ever walked by the New York Times building in Manhattan, you would know that it's completely, it's all windows. And it was designed by Renzo Piano, the architect, to be this model for full transparency. So every room in the building is windows. 
and there was only one room besides the bathrooms, which I guess we could have worked in if they wanted to be cruel, but <laughs> one of the only rooms in the building that lacked windows was Arthur Solzberger, our publisher's storage closet. So for about three months, um, the Grumpy Scots and, <laughs> and myself and my colleague, Scott Shane, and our editor, Rebecca Corbett, were stuffed into this tiny little storage closet going through these documents and what we sort of joked was our own skiff. Um, and <laughs> that's that's how that project began and sort of so began this project that became this book. I wondered if you could break down zero days for the uninitiated because it, it seems to me that that's the entry portal through which uh, readers of your book enter the, the 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 rest of the book so could you break that down for me a little bit please yes great idea and that's where i i worried the book might feel too technical for readers so i really spent a lot of time just defining what is a zero day so a zero day is essentially just a vulnerability in software it could be a hole in your ios software that makes your, your phone crash, or it could be something that a skilled hacker could use to essentially weaponize to the point where they could access your iPhone communications remotely unbeknownst to you. So it's just a vulnerability in the code. Sometimes we describe it as like a mistake the engineer made when they were coding. And these bugs and holes get into our software all the time, and that's why we're constantly getting nagged to run our software updates on our phones because a lot of those software updates patch the bugs that, that they find once they've rolled out this software. So that's happening all the time. But what, what I learned was that governments saw value in these errors in code that they could exploit to access your communications. And a zero day is the whole itself. A zero day exploit is the code that gets used to access um, or take advantage of that hole in your software for any number of reasons. Now, if you're the NSA, most of the time that's espionage. That's just the ability to spy on your phone sort of untethered um, without anyone knowing. And the decision that these agencies have to make is when they find a hole, let's keep with this analogy, if they find a hole in your iPhone software, do they go tell Apple, hey, there's a zero day in your latest iOS software and here, you know, you might want to fix it and roll out a patch to everyone that uses this software? Or are we going to keep this so that we can monitor the iPhone communications of terrorists or, you know, officials in Russia or at an embassy somewhere? And so that that is essentially a zero day. It's just a hole that can be used for espionage. Now, one little caveat to this is, just like I was saying earlier, because a lot of the software in not your iPhone technically, but in Windows or um, Cisco or Siemens industrial software gets rolled into factories and hospitals and nuclear plants and the power grid, there's an extra wrinkle here, which is, the agencies, if they find a hole that could affect the power grid, they have to ask themselves, okay, do we do we get this patched so no one can hack into our power grid? Or do we keep it in the event we wanna hack into Russia's power grid or Iran's power grid? And so zero days in that sense also have 
huge potential for destruction. Um, and, and that also became one of the things I became fixated on, which was, you know, how do they make these decisions? How do they justify sort of stockpiling a hole in our industrial controls in systems that you know, govern the power grid or gas pipelines that could really be used for an attack? Uh, how do they decide whether to keep those so that they could pull off their own cyber-induced attack or decide to patch them so nothing blows back here? When I was reading that part of the book, it, it made me think for some reason about the the episode of The Crown where the intruder gets into the Queen's bedroom. Uh, so you can have this well-defended mansion, but if one window is left open somewhere, then, um, you know, if you know where that window is, then you can you can get find your way in. I don't know if you've watched The Crown. I have, and I'm blanking on the episode you're talking okay. about, but that is a way better description than the one I just gave. That is exactly what a zero day is. It's a window that you didn't know was unlocked that someone could use to get in. And I mean, one of the the things that I found really interesting in the book was you walk through how the, a, a market develops for zero days. Could you take our listeners a little bit on that journey? Yes. So I should stop here and say that the zero day market is one thing that nobody involved in the zero day market wants to talk about. I sort of describe it in the book like they describe Fight Club. You know, the first rule of the zero-day market is no one talks about the zero-day market. And the second rule of the zero-day market is no one talks about the zero-day market. And the reason is, is because if anyone talked about this market, then you have these, you know, then you find out where the windows are unlocked and how people are using them to get in. Um, Or, you know, governments, because they're paying hackers and brokers of zero days, to uh, you know, basically expand their arsenal of hacking and espionage tools. If a broker talks to a journalist, the government will stop doing business with that broker. So no one wanted to talk to me, which made this project nearly impossible. And so the way I kind of went in was I started with what was already out there, what was already public about companies and, and people paying hackers for, for zero days. and. What I found was there was this company that around uh, the turn of the century, it was called iDefense, discovered that you know, they could really give their commercial customers, you know, banks, some cases government agencies that have nothing to do with espionage, an early look at vulnerabilities in their systems if they paid hackers small payments. You know, in the beginning, it was $75 or $100 to turn over the holes they were finding in these systems. And so they started paying these hackers and it was all very public. And then something changed. So um, they started getting calls, the people who ran this company, iDefense, the CEO's name was John Waters. He started getting these calls from these, I call them mystery callers um, because he wouldn't tell me who they were, but they were clearly defense contractors or representatives of intelligence agencies who were calling him and saying, hey, all those bugs you've been paying hackers for and then sharing with your commercial customers, what if we pay you $150,000 for the bugs you're paying $75 or maybe $10,000 for? And instead of you telling your customers so they can work around them and patch them and fix them, how about you just tell us about them and then shut up about them? And 
John Waters was taking these calls and was thinking, why would I do this? Because if this ever came out that I was working against my customers, I, I, our business would be done. There would be there would be nothing to it. So he turned them down, and I eventually was able to track down one of those mystery callers. And <laughs> he spoke to me on the condition that I not use his name. So in the book, I call him Jimmy Sabian. And he met with me and he was, I believe, one of the US government's first brokers of zero days, meaning he was going out there and paying hackers to turn over zero days then weaponizing them and selling them to various US intelligence agencies. And what he found was that he there was a huge demand, particularly after 9-11, to get inside as many communication platforms as possible because there was this urgency to track and monitor terrorist communications. And so government agencies were willing to pay you know, a million dollars for five weaponized zero days in things like Microsoft software, or Microsoft email software, or, you know, anything we used for email or communications. And so he kind of laid out the land and it was really interesting talking to him because it was clear that there wasn't a lot of coordination between various US spy agencies. You know, they were all coming to him and paying something like $150,000 for the very same bug. And even he had to pause and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I get what you guys are doing, but as an American taxpayer, I need you guys to all go to lunch and talk about the fact that you're essentially paying, uh, you know, 10 times over for the same thing that you could get for, you know, $150,000 versus a million dollars. And so, that was just interesting from a sort of taxpayer waste perspective. But what he warned me about, and he had, been, by the time I sat down with him, it was about 2015 and he had been out of this business for a while. But what he was saying was, the problem is when, when he started doing this, there was only two or three defense contractors around the beltway that were doing this. And then he said, now there are hundreds and they're not just in the United States, they're overseas. And a lot of governments, especially after the cyber attack, I sort of flicked at earlier, where the US and Israel together hacked into an Iranian nuclear facility and spun their centrifuge rotors out of control. You know, once that attack got out, it really woke up the world to what they were missing out on and the power of a zero day, both for espionage and also for you know, physical destruction. And once that cat was out of the bag, nearly every other country with the resources to do so got into this zero day market. And that is actually where we are now. You know, there are zero day brokers all over the world who are paying hackers for these ways into your iPhone or into Windows or into the Siemens industrial controls and not telling anyone about them and sometimes you know predominantly they're using them for espionage but then there's a lot of governments like saudi arabia and the united arab emirates i mean countries that we think of as allies but you know potentially dubious allies who use these tools to monitor and terrorize their own critics and their own people 
And so that is sort of where the market has headed is some of the governments that are willing to pay the most for these zero days are governments that really lack the sort of bureaucratic red tape and the human rights controls that we have here in the United States and our closest you know, partners in Five Eyes, like the UK and Australia and New Zealand and Canada have. And so in a sense, this market that the US had spawned and also cornered for a long time um, has now just sort of left the, left the bottle and, and can't be put back in again. And, and where is the market now? And in, in the book, you talk about uh, a wild west. Um, is it still the wild west? Um, wh- wh- where are we at the moment? It's still very much a wild west because, as I note in the book, this is a market where governments aren't regulators. They have no incentive to regulate because they are the biggest clients and customers. And so there really are very few restrictions on how this market operates. And what was interesting to me is that some of the countries that advertise the biggest prices for ways to hack into your iPhone are now uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which is why I focused on them. But there's also been sort of a, a maturing of the product. You know, governments aren't just buying the raw material they're buying click and shoot tools that have many zero days baked in. And so one of the companies I focused on both in my coverage at the New York Times and in the book is an Israeli company called NSO Group. And NSO Group, um, you know, their software, I should call it spyware actually, <laughs> keeps popping up in on the phones of journalists and activists and in the most bizarre case, which I did cover for the New York Times when it happened, uh, I started getting these calls from nutrition act, you know, nutritionists in Mexico and doctors in Mexico and public health advocates in Mexico. And they had all been getting these bizarre messages with links. And when they clicked on them, we discovered that they were inadvertently downloading this NSO government spyware onto their phones. And at first it was really confusing. Like why would any government want to monitor a nutritionist? But once the totality of cases became clear, it was very easy to see what these people all had in common, which is that they were all fighting uh, for a proposed soda tax in Mexico where Coca-Cola and um, soda, I think maintains one of of their largest market shares is in Mexico. So it was clear that whoever was spying on these people um, didn't want this soda tax to pass. And it was, it was clearly a corrupt use of spyware. And so it just became a very clear cut case of, you know, it doesn't have to be Iran or, or um, you know, a country with Sudan, a country with abysmal human rights records. Once governments get these tools into their hands, Governments, even like Mexico, can use them for corrupt purposes and are indeed doing so. And the soda tax example just seemed to be clear-cut corruption, but also just really illustrated how few controls there are once these tools get into government's hands. And even once I sort of uncovered these cases in the soda tax example, when I called NSO and spoke with them, their response was, well, we only sell these to governments with good human rights records. And... You know, if we if we hear of any of the, any abuse, 
we'll stop we'll stop selling to these customers. But the Mexico example is just so clear because first of all, the only way they were going to learn of any abuse of their product once it had left the the um, building was if a journalist like me uncovered it or digital rights activists uncovered it. Second of all, they can't just go marching into a Mexican intelligence agency or law enforcement agency and rip their software out of the building. So really, you know, those tools remain in government's hands that have used it for abusive purposes. And and all they can really do is ju just stop serving those customers new features. Um, they, they can't even really turn it off remotely. So it just became clear that, you know, even companies that say they have these controls really have very little control over how these tools get used. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And I was wondering if you could give us another example just to uh, bring it within the sphere of understanding for our listeners. So, so say A is a state and B is the zero day patch and C is the outcome. G give us an idea of like in the market, how does that all come together? So the patch and the zero day are two different things. The patch is the fix for the zero day. Once a zero day gets patched or a patch becomes available, it's no longer a zero day. Um, it's just a bug that you know, people can patch over and it sort of loses its its spy potential over time as more and more people run their software updates. But the way that it works, and it works differently in different cases, but let's just stick with the simplest example. So let's say I'm a hacker and I have found a way to get into your iPhone. I'm sitting in the Bay Area, you're sitting in DC, and I have found a zero day in the iOS software that essentially lets me read your texts from, from here. So I have two options. I can call up Apple, tell them I found this bug, and they can patch it and roll out a software patch to their customers. Or I could go see how much I can get for that vulnerability by selling it usually to what is now a very mature market. So there are now many zero day brokers who actively advertise online that they'll pay as much as $2 million or $3 million for your way into the iPhone. So if I go to one of those brokers, I say, hey, I have a zero day in iOS software that I want to sell to you. They'll usually ask me to sign an NDA that I'll never tell Apple or anyone else about that zero day. Sometimes they have exclusivity clauses, which just means 
you know, you're only going to sell it to me. You're not going to sell it to other brokers or other governments. And then those brokers will take it and they'll sell it to governments. And they each have their own rules for what they, who they will and will not sell to. But most of them will sell to the United States and most of them will sell to our Western allies. And those governments will then take that zero day and either they'll also purchase the code to exploit it, in which case it fetches a higher price, or they'll have their team basically create the code to exploit it so that they can hack on all the iPhones they want the world over. And they'll keep that zero day. And maybe one day someone separately says, hey, I found this bug in, in Apple software and they turn it over to Apple and it gets patched. And then that zero day that these intelligence agencies have bought you know, no longer works. And they've sort of, their zero day has gone from a diamond into dust. Um, and that that is sort of the simplest way that this market works. Um, but, you know, as you can see, you know, in that example, it has repercussions for the rest of us because just because one guy found a zero day in your iPhone software doesn't mean that there aren't hackers the world over who could find that same zero day and potentially sell it to our adversaries, to cyber criminals, and it couldn't be used to monitor your iPhone communications by some cyber criminal in Eastern Europe too. So that that's where the danger lies, is that it's not as if just one person can find this and that's that and no one else will find it and use it or abuse it for more than just the espionage potential of the US government. You know. This is all software that we all use the world over, and it's very unlikely that a bug in your iPhone wouldn't be discovered by someone else at some point. And, and you mentioned an NDA there. To what extent is this on a legal footing? So it, that's the problem is there aren't a lot of laws that govern <laughs> this um, because, frankly, the biggest users are governments. and they don't want to see laws that inhibit who they're able to spy on and how they're able to do it. Um, and so, you know, it's not just NDAs. A lot of these programs uh, at intelligence agencies are highly classified. So there's a classification element. You know, when I went back and met with the guy I'm calling Jimmy Sabian, it was so early on in the market that yes, there were NDAs, he said, but there these programs weren't yet classified because they just weren't that mature yet. And so he felt more comfortable talking to me than other zero-day brokers were. Um, there are very famous stories more recently of zero-day brokers who said too much to journalists and saw their business plummet by half because frankly, no government wants to work with a zero-day broker who's gonna go post for a photo for Forbes magazine with a giant duffel bag of cash sitting next to them. And that is actually exactly what happened in that case. Uh, a very famous broker named The Gruck on Twitter. Um, he spoke with an old colleague of mine, Andy Greenberg, then at Forbes, about the zero day market and posed for a photo with a giant duffel bag of cash sitting next to him and talked about the fact that he was brokering zero days to various governments. And what hasn't been reported, but what I wrote about in the book was that after he did that, he got a visit from the Thai police. He lives in Thailand and his business plummeted by more than half because no one wanted to work with someone who was going to talk about this business. And really, that seems to be the answer here is governments aren't adding laws around these things. They're just adding more classification 
restrictions around these things. So long as no one knows that they're happening and no one's talking about it, then they don't actually have to address them. And that was my goal with the book was to shine a big fat light on this market and on this practice and on the boomerang potential of these tools to come boomeranging back and hurt us and hurt, you know, have real serious implications for our critical infrastructure. One of the things that I found quite interesting in the book, you speak at the beginning uh, about how researching this and reporting this uh, led to a sense of paranoia and you know I realized that it also meant that you were rubbing shoulders with uh, a variety of let's just say interesting people Um, and even at the beginning of your of your endeavor uh, I believe that Lean Panetta and Michael Hayden who many of our listeners will know um, and you know basically said to you good luck Yep. Yeah. When I I spoke with Leon Panetta, he said, I think you're going to run into a lot of walls, Nicole. And he was right. I ran into a lot of walls. And when I told Michael Hayden what I was working on, he said a sort of like, good luck, kiddo. You know, that is one thing no one wants to talk about. Um, So yes, I mean, and it did get very paranoid. I mean, the, these are, I, I was exposing a business and a practice by governments all over the world, many who have not held back from hacking Americans um, and particularly journalists. Uh, So that added its own kind of paranoia to this. But just in general, I mean, I have been reporting on cyber espionage now for 10 years. And so I've had these moments of just, oh God, who is watching me through my webcam? And why is my cable box making this much noise and ripping the thing out of the wall? And I had, I actually did that. I was, I was writing about how the Chinese hacked the New York Times for several months. And before I published, the cable box in my bedroom television just started making crazy noises. And I ripped it out of the wall in the middle of the night. And in the morning in broad daylight, I saw what I had done. And I just thought, my God, you know, I, I have a choice here. I can either put on a tinfoil hat <laughs> or I can just expect that all of my communications will eventually be monitored or made public and act accordingly. And that's sort of what I did. So through the practice of the book, um, you know, when I had to go meet with someone really sensitive, I would leave all my devices at home and I would bring a pen and paper you know, I had this one incident I talk about in the book where I went down to Argentina to explore what the market looked like in Buenos Aires, which I'd heard murmurs about. And I had brought this burner laptop. I'd asked work to just send me the, the worst, crappiest laptop they had. And so they did. But even while I was there, I was so paranoid that I just used pen and paper the whole time and, and left the laptop in a safe. And I did come home one time and, and the safe was open and the laptop had been moved, but all my cash was still in the hotel room. And so it was very clear to me that I needed to be very careful about how I went protecting, you know, source communications for me. And, and um, yeah, it, it definitely lent itself to some serious paranoia. <laughs> I think it would also be interesting to understand a little bit more about some of the agencies that are involved what what is the cast of characters like in terms of of american agencies who's involved who has the the main roles here i wondered if you could just break that down for us and 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 sketch the terrain out sure so i actually learned that you know the nsa for a long time didn't play in this market 
because they had the best hackers and cryptographers on staff. So they didn't necessarily need to go out and buy a zero day from a hacker in Eastern Europe because they had those hackers in the building uh, who had those capabilities. So in the beginning, it was really agencies who lacked the skill sets uh, to break into these systems who were major players in the market. And those were some of the obvious intelligence agencies, you know, the CIA. Um, but then there was this whole other list of agencies, frankly, I had never even heard of that I was told played in this market. One of them was the Missile Defense Agency. I don't know if you even knew we had a Missile Defense Agency, <laughs> but apparently they see a, lar a lot of potential in zero days. And now I understand why, which is if you have a zero day that can get you into the launch schedule for how North Korea tests its missiles, then you can potentially know when they're going to go off and you can even get into the actual governing controls for those missile launches to make sure that there are happy accidents when they do launch. And so the Missile Defense Agency was buying zero days. And as far as I know, they haven't stopped uh, to get into these systems. So the, and then the other category of agencies is law enforcement. So the DEA, the FBI, um, they have their own reasons for trying to procure zero days because it allows them to monitor you know, child predators, um, you know, criminals, cyber criminals, uh, drug cartels. Um, and so that that also, you know, zero days are a powerful tool for them. I think uh, some of our listeners will be thinking, what what the hell are big tech doing for the uninitiated? Like how 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 come Apple can't write something that doesn't have all of the windows closed? Right. So for a long time, I think the technology companies were just in a competition with each other to really dominate these markets. And the company that really epitomized that speed at first was Microsoft. You know, when the internet happened, um, Microsoft missed, missed it. You know, Netscape was the one that really captured that market. When uh, Microsoft dominated the PC market, but they completely overlooked the internet. And so in the beginning, they were just racing to catch up. So they were writing programs for their web servers and for Windows and all sorts of programs at a speed and with a haste where security was just sort of a, a, an afterthought. And hackers started probing these systems and, and trying to alert Microsoft to say, hey, wait a minute, I just used your server to get into NASA. You know, I shouldn't be able to do this. And in those days, Microsoft's philosophy was, we'll stop, stop messing with our program and using it to get into NASA. You know, we're busy over here. And that created a lot of really bad blood between the hacking community and the Microsofts of the world. And it wasn't just Microsoft, it was Sun Microsystems, it was Hewlett Packard, uh, Oracle, you know, it was a lot of the early big tech companies. And what happened next was that we saw these huge attacks, um, essentially computer worms that use these vulnerabilities, um, very famous ones like NIMDA um, and the I love you virus um, that didn't just, you know, take over Microsoft systems. They were taking over systems belonging to the U.S. government. And once it became clear that this was actually a national security agency, 
you know, the U.S. government procurement offices started calling up Bill Gates and saying, hey, you better do something about your security or we're going to take our business elsewhere. And Bill Gates actually ended up writing this memo called the Open Trustworthy Computing Memo that changed the game. And in it, he said, we recognize that security has to be a major priority for Microsoft. And initially hackers sort of dismissed it and wrote it off as a publicity stunt or a joke. But actually inside Microsoft, they really made quite a few substantial changes. They um, you know, ripped out all the, the, their new software that they were planning on rolling out and, take, and took a good hard look at the code and brought what they call security by design um, into play, which means let's look at security while we're designing the code, not after we've already rolled it out and it has all these bugs. Um, they even started a program by which they were creating more open communication channels with hackers uh, who could bring these bugs to them so that the first person these hackers were hearing back from wasn't the general counsel, but someone in the security department at Microsoft who would really work with them to fix these holes. And that really did have a major impact and it's taken other companies sort of their own nimda moments to come around to this so at google the big wake-up call was aurora which was an attack by the chinese government on google and, and google source code and gmail um, back in 2009 2010 and that became google's big wake-up call so what google did was they also made security their number one priority you know sergey brin um, was an emigrant from Russia who really was concerned genuinely with human rights and surveillance. And Google's security team, I would say today, is one of the most top-notch security teams out there. And one of the things they did, in addition to improving their own security, was they rolled out what's called a bug bounty program which was they recognized, listen, you know, governments clearly see a monetary value in bugs in our system. We need to start providing hackers with monetary value for bringing bugs to us first before they would bring them to governments. And so they started paying hackers for bugs in their code so that they could patch them and fix them so that they couldn't be exploited for espionage or breaches or potentially something worse. And slowly other companies around Silicon Valley have really come around to this. So it's, you know, not just Google, it's Apple, which was which was one of the last companies to, to offer bounties to hackers, but they now pay bounties as well. Um, Facebook to, you know, most companies actually in the Silicon Valley, if they are a mature security company, or sorry, I should just say a secure co a company that takes their security seriously, now will pay back, uh, pay hackers for bugs in their code. Um, and that's not to say that they aren't still putting bugs into these codes, but it, uh, it has become a lot uh, harder for hackers to find these zero days and exploit them in a way that can really be used for some of these click and shoot espionage tools. And, and from what I've heard, you know, you, you used to be able to find uh, Microsoft zero day in an afternoon. Now to find a really serious Microsoft zero day, it might might take you months. And so, you know, when people do find them, they can turn them over to Microsoft and Microsoft will pay them for that bug. Or they can, you know, develop the code to exploit it and sell it to governments. And governments will continue to pay much 
more for those bugs than the technology companies will, but at least it's helped level the playing field a bit. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.